Welcome. Stay with us. Systematic Saturday. What a great place to be. Definitely. Weekend time. Weekend time. And what, what I don't know, when, when it comes to weekend, for me, what I want to talk about is William Hendrickson. Ooh, Book of yeah. Revelation. Book of More Revelation comes to mind. Yeah, totally. You totally. know, one of the things I learned about William Hendrickson was that he could read and write in 20 languages. Oh, that's okay. Whatever. He learned Spanish, Spanish at the age of 75. Just for a kick. Just wow. for a while. Just I'm, to keep his brain going. <laughs> That is crazy. My brother just got back from that translators com- conference, and uh, <laughs> he said he was he was uh, sitting, you know, having a beer, having lunch with the guys afterwards, and they were all just speaking in Hebrew. <laughs> and, and then they just flicked over into um, into Spanish or whatever was next, you know, and and they all just like these polyglots, yeah, and some Chaldean, dude. You know, it's bad enough that they can read that stuff, let alone, let alone speak it anyway. But uh, yeah, no, Hendrickson was crazy like that. How many languages did you say? 20. I thought it was 12. No, nah, bro. Read around 20 languages. I got some uh, 50 year edition of More Than Conquerors and there's like a little biographical note in it. Wow. Outstanding. Lo- I love the guy's commentaries. I mean, he's so pastoral. Yeah, I mean, I use them in the Gospels a lot. Yeah. Um, but I believe he didn't finish the whole series of the New Testament, but I think he was it was all him on the Gospels. Um, yeah, his son-in-law, Simon Kistemacher. Yes. He uh, he did this, some of the others. It's a great set. What's it called again? The Baker. Um, I just remember, I was always jealous of it, that red set. Yeah, the red set. I think it's the Baker Reformed New Testament commentary series or something. Um, anyway... Good. Yeah, so uh, we're wanting to look at the book of Revelation, just carrying on from last week. Um, mm. And for anyone who hasn't read uh, Hendrickson's More Than Conquerors, it is just worth its weight in gold. And you don't even have to read the whole thing. Mm. You only have to read the first 90 pages. Yeah. In the first 90 pages, what he does <clears throat> is you certain hermeneutical principles. Yes. Which unlock the whole book. And even if you disagree on the details... You can agree on the principles. Yeah. So you, you, you know, even though you may not agree exactly what seal three means, mm-hmm. you can, in general, you can agree what the seals indicate. Yeah, and there are times that he might go a little bit overly like crazy on a symbol here and there, and, and yeah, things yeah. have been challenged. But yeah, exactly right. You stay on those principles without without question. Yeah. So there are nine of them. So let's just shoot them out and cool. uh, discuss them as we go. Mm. So proposition one: the book of Revelation consists of seven sections mm-hmm. they are parallel and each spans the entire new dispensation from the first to the second coming of christ so mm. what you need to do is you need to imagine the book of revelation repeating mm. from the first coming of christ to the second coming of christ the same period of time from seven different angles and i think the classic uh, illustration is you know if you world cups on at the moment hmm. if you if you watch the world cup what you see is that they change camera angles all the time and so you got one camera above the mid- midway line mm-hmm. one camera behind mm-hmm. the post another camera down on the ground at the mm-hmm. 22 you know and so you got seven cameras marking out seven different perspectives and that's what the book of revelation is progressive so, recapitulation is that what he calls yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. So uh, just to, and, and some people uh, 
fine tune. <coughs> Excuse me, <coughs> recovering from the flu here. Mm-hmm. They fine tune the the seven sections differently. But here's a basic breakdown. So chapters one to three would be the first section. Mm-hmm. Chapters four to seven, the second. Mm-hmm. Chapters eight to eleven, the third. Twelve to fourteen, the middle section. Mm-hmm. Fifteen and sixteen, seventeen to nineteen, and twenty to twenty-two. Yeah. So Hendrickson's got just a very nice neat. It follows the the chapter divisions we have in our Bibles. Others might fine tune it a little bit because mm-hmm. the chapter divisions aren't inspired. Mm-hmm. But um, generally speaking, that's the right division. He looks for those literary markers, and um, you know, usually it's quite clear. I mean, you've got the series of this and then the series of that, and you know, you can kind of see quite vividly when 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 it's recapitulating. Definitely. Yeah. And uh, Dennis Johnson, I think, is also pretty helpful. Oh he man. Says, um, you know. Think about think about when you build a puzzle. What what pieces do you first put on put down to build your puzzle? Uh, you the corner. With the edge. You always start with mm. the corner pieces and the edge pieces, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Says, well, as you look at these seven sections, you find the edge pieces. You find those pieces yeah. that give you the bearing, and there are certain things which reveal a repetition. One of those themes is judgment themes. Mm-hmm. So you're going to find little judgment scenes all the way through the book, and these are going to give you your bearings for the seven different sections so here's here's an example from um uh i think it's the third one so listen to this just tell me does this sound like the second coming or not this is Mm -hmm. from revelation 6 12 to 17 when he opened the sixth seal i looked and behold there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and mm. who can stand mm. does that sound like the day of judgment mm-hmm. well guess what it's not revelation 20 or 21 it's mm. six revelation six and this is one of those flat edge pieces which shows that there is a repetition of a judgment scene in those seven sections that gets repeated throughout right and and i suppose i mean um i might be wrong here but i think from what i remember you know the only way to account for it otherwise is when you come up with those weird timelines where you've got you know, some sort of pre-tribulation judgment and then this thing and then that thing. But here's the trouble with a primal view. Stars falling from the sky. Yeah, it just doesn't work. It can't be literal. Yeah. You know, the day of the wrath has come. The throne of judgment's right there. Yeah. You know, all the judgment language, the sun, the moon, everything. It's Mm. all the great day of their wrath has come. Yeah. You know, it's 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 that final day. And if you are a primal literalistic reader, I mean you've got to you've got to take that to heart. Yeah. Knock me back anyway. Yeah, absolutely. So, no, I mean, exactly. so the judgments is one of those things that gives you the bearing on the seven sections. The other thing that gives you a bearing is not only is God concerned in the book of Revelation to reveal judgment upon God's enemies and the enemies of God's people, hmm. but also the rest of the saints and the protection of God's saints. Hmm. And so in the same in, in every one of those seven sections, you not only have a an indication of judgment, you also have an indication of rest and victory. Mm. So listen to this, the whole of chapter 7, um, following directly on from that scene, so it shifts from what happens to the bad guys to what happens to the good guys. Mm. Listen to verses 15 to 17. 
Now, this is going to sound just like Revelation 21 to 22, right? But listen right. to this. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What does that sound like? Yeah, I mean, that's heaven. Removed. <laughs> Sounds yeah. like a new creation right yeah. there. Yeah. So the seven sections are marked um, in that way. And yeah, please refer to Henriksen. He'll give you all the details to, to show a convincing uh, seven-section structure there. Yeah, totally. Man, cool. that's awesome. So that's that's proposition one, seven sections. Okay, Good. proposition two. The seven sections may be grouped into two major divisions. Hmm. The first major division is chapters 1 to 11, mm-hmm. which consists of three sections. The second major division is 12 to 22, which has the four of the remaining seven. So these two major divisions, 1 to 11 and 12 to 22, mm-hmm. feel a progress in depth or intensity of spiritual conflict. So right. the, first, the first division, 1 to 11, reveals the church, indwelt by Christ, persecuted by the world. Mm. The church is avenged, protected, and victorious. That's how... Uh, 1 to 11 ends. Mm-hmm. And the second major divisions, now what, imagine this, you pull back the curtains. Mm-hmm. And so where we've looked at the church and persecuting government powers, we've seen a very earthly scene. <laughs> you pull back the curtains and 12 to 22 shows you the spiritual conflict that's going on behind the scenes, showing mm-hmm. that it's a conflict between Christ and the dragon. Mm-hmm. And um, so it sort of, uh, it shows you the spiritual powers behind the earthly powers. That's what's so helpful about it because, I mean, you know, without that framework, it's it just comes across super jumbled, you know? You just, um, you're like, where am I? What am I even thinking about? What's going on over here? And if you're so confused trying to work it all out that, you know, you're unable to actually receive what's being said. But just, I remember going through that the first time and going, oh my goodness, it feels like I'm actually tracking with this, you know? <laughs> and uh, and yeah, just to know that you you sort of switch stations there and you're, you're, you're looking at it from a different perspective or it's increased intensity on the same perspective uh, yeah. or even as you just said, you know, the, the spiritual sort of realities behind a certain perspective. That's awesome. You know, it just means yeah. that you can actually, you're not so concerned to figure out what every symbol is saying more than you're just able almost intuitively to understand what what the, the greater, you know, the, the greater section is telling you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So in chapters 1 to 11, the, the, the battle of the church is with unbelievers, but then in the second section, it's with principalities and powers. Mm. So you just you get a clear sense of that as you go through the book. Totally, nice, I think so. Two-part two division. Mm. Okay, Proposition 3. Mm-hmm. The book is one. So you cut Simple. out there? Say again? The book is one. The book is one. The principles of human conduct and divine moral government are progressively revealed. The lampstands give rise to the seals, the seals to the trumpets. And what he means by this? is this, the book of Revelation, although a kaleidoscope of visions, is a unified story of God's working in the church. Mm. Okay? In this proposition, we're not asking how does the book divide itself in order to be understood, but how do the parts <clears throat> relate to each other, painting a single picture? Yeah, good. Okay, Are so that's, that's the book is one. Mm-hmm. So let me, let me give you, this is a little bit of what the way Henriksen summarizes it, a summary of the whole book in one storyline. Cool. Okay, so mm-hmm. just sit back and hear this. All right. Vision begins with Christ. He is present with his church to purify it and to judge those who are persecuting it. As you move to chapters 2 to 3, the Christ of chapter 1 permeates the messages to the seven churches. 
In it all, it is as if we hear Christ whispering, Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Christ, the light of the world, is amongst the lampstands and the lights of the world. Conflicts between the church and the world is inevitable. However, before we see the outbreak of persecution that will soon take place, John is lifted into the heavens in order to see that the terrible sufferings about to ensue are all part of God's decree. And no, this is not the point at which the church is raptured and the seven-year tribulation begins, contrary to Walford and others. All right, the seven churches will be refined in the fire of suffering. And so in chapter 4, we are transported to the throne room, where it is Christ who takes the scroll. It is Christ who opens the seals, the Son of Man governing the world in the interest of the church. That's the, that's the significance of chapters 4 and 5. Mm. Can they be bad? Can these terrible things that are about to come upon the church be bad if they're handed to us from Christ himself? Mm. It just shows you where it's all coming from. Mm, totally. So we see peace taken from the world and many killed and in anguish. But in it all, we see the church, although harassed, is protected. Mm. And in the fifth seal, we see that God's people are not destroyed, but kept in his presence in the intermediate state. And then a final judgment, a banishment of all evil. Mm. The sixth seal is a distended description of the numbered people of God, complete in number and in a state of bliss. But what about the persecutors? Do they get off scot-free? No. In chapter 8, we see the prayers of the persecuted saints returning to the earth as thunder, lightning in an earthquake. 8 verse 5 reads, thus... Uh, eight verse five and then hendrickson says thus this section on the trumpets of judgments teaches us that by means of plagues upon the land the sea the rivers sun moon and stars evil influences of demons the battlefield and the dreadful expectation of the final judgment our risen and exalted redeemer is constantly avenging the church and sending judgment upon her persecutors yet these judgments though severe are charged with warning they are not final they destroy a third part not the whole by means of them, God is still calling to repentance. Remember, trumpets warn, Hendrickson says. Mm. While these judgments are falling, what is happening to the church? The church's safety, witness-bearing, power and cross-bearing, along with final victory, are described in <clears throat> chapters 7 and 11, which ends with the song of triumph in 11, 15 to 18. Now, the book of Revelation could have ended at the end of chapter 11, but there are still questions crying out for an answer. What is the underlying cause of this persecution of the church in the world? What is going to happen to those who did not heed the voice of the, tri uh, the trumpet judgments in 921? Chapters 1 to 11 tell the story of the church as the light of the world, hated by darkness. God preserving his church, judging the world, calling it to repentance, and all wrapped up in a final judgment. Well, chapters 12 to 14 take us behind the scenes that we can see that the real conflict is not one of flesh and blood, but a spiritual battle between Christ and the devil. We're told of the devil's defeat and being thrown out of heaven and introduced to his helpers as he rages against the church. We meet the beast out of the sea, 13, 1 to 10, which represents anti-Christian persecution. The devil's war for our bodies in John's day, the government of Rome. The beast out of the earth represents false religion and the devil's war for our minds. In John's day, this would have been the paganism and Caesar worship. Babylon represents worldly seduction and the devil's war for our hearts. The first century culture with all of its decadence would have been the first century expression of this. We see that these forces will not succeed because there is a final judgment scene at the end of chapter 14. The rest of the book of Revelation draws out the judgment of the church's foes. So five enemies in all were introduced in 12 to 14. First the dragon, second the beast out of the sea, then the beast out of the earth, then Babylon, then men with the mark of the beast. We see that they are shown to be judged in reverse order. We see men with the mark judged first. Then we see the fall of Babylon in 17 and 18. Then we see the two beasts judged. And then last of all, Satan. 
Then the vista opens up with a new creation in a world free from all enemies, Satan, sin, and death. The Lamb is the victor. God gets the glory, and we, the church, share in the everlasting joy. Yeah. One the, single story. The book the is one. Yeah. The book is one. Powerful, eh? So awesome. Man, <laughs> if that doesn't get you, I mean, that's going to do two things. It's going to get you wanting to read Henningsen and getting you want to go to church tomorrow. <laughs> you know, just to preempt that. We're going there. But all right, that was principle four, right? No, that was three. Three? Oh, here's, come on. One of them is short, sorry. Right. Here's, here's proposition four. <clears throat> the seven <clears throat> sections of the apocalypse are arranged in ascending climactic order. Yeah. There is progress in eschatological emphasis. Right. The final judgment is first announced, then introduced, then described, and then, of course, culminated. Mm-hmm. Similarly, the new heavens and earth are described more fully in the final section than those uh, which precede. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is the progressive aspect of yeah. progressive parallelism. So the right. closer one gets to the end of the book of Revelation, the more the focus turns to judgment, to consummation and what lies beyond it. And again, that's easy to pick up. It's not like an artificial thing that we're talking about here. It, you get that as you go through, you know. So Just it makes sense. Is he points out one or two details. He right. says, a careful examination of the apocalypse makes this clear. In the first series, Christ in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, we have no more than a mere announcement of Christ's coming in 1 verse 7. Hmm. There's no description. But in the second section, 4 to 7, the final judgment is not merely announced, but definitely introduced. We catch a glimpse of the horror which fills the wicked when they behold the judge. But that's all. Again, no no full description. A few verses are devoted to a description of the church triumphant <coughs> after the judgment. The next vision, similarly, chapters 8 to 11, introduces the final judgment in the joy of the redeemed. But as soon as we enter the second main division of the book, there's a change. In the very first section of the main division, we have a real description of the final judgment in chapter 14. But it's still quite a symbolic representation. And so it goes on and on and on until finally chapters 19 and 20, we just have the the most full and intense Mm. of judgment coming upon the wicked. Mm. So, yeah, you need to realize it picks up pace and picks up detail as it moves towards the end. Yeah, for sure. Brilliant. Um, Good. This is one of my favorite ones. The fabric of the book consists of moving pictures. The details that pertain, pertain to the picture should be interpreted in harmony with its central thought. We should ask two questions. First, what is the entire picture and what is its predominant idea? In other words, as you look at each scene and each vision, mm-hmm. you know, we take them as units, not details. Yeah. And uh, do, you, do you remember uh, Hendrickson's example of the Good Samaritan from Luke 10? Yep. Yeah, yep. Totally. Yeah. So let me, let me read this because it's okay. hilarious. No, so totally. he, he gives an example of what not to do with the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. And he uses the parable of the Good Samaritan as a, as a bad way to read the Bible. So right. this is the way he puts it. He says, the man who is on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho is Adam, ah. the head of the race. Wait a minute. Are you saying he's not Adam? <laughs> I'm saying <he's> <laughs> oh you see I thought this was the best example I thought this was how we're supposed to do it <laughs> so what not yeah all right all right so he left the heavenly city Jerusalem sorry Grace Ned sorry Grace Ned I appreciate that one <laughs> <laughs> down to the city of earth Jericho yeah. mm-hmm. he falls into the hands of robbers that is he's overpowered by Satan and his evil angels the robbers strip him of the garment of original righteousness They also beat him, leaving him full of wounds, half dead. Yes, half dead in sins and trespasses. The priest, 
and the Levite represent the law and the sacrifices. They cannot save the sinner. They are powerless to help. But the good Samaritan, namely Jesus Christ, is traveling that way and helps the poor sinner. The good Samaritan dresses his wounds with the oil of the Holy Spirit and with, with wine, namely the blood of his passion. He then puts the poor man on his own mule that is on the merits of his own righteousness. He takes the poor man to an inn, which is the church. The next day, the good Samaritan gives the host two shillings, which is the word in the sacraments, in order that these may provide for, spir- for the spiritual needs of the poor sinner. Then this good Samaritan departs, but promises to return later. It, so- it sounds like Father Friday. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly what an early church sermon sounds like. Exactly. Yeah. So, and uh, all of the details of the parable are essential to the telling of the parable, but not all the details bear equal weight or have mm. a distinct value. Yeah. And that's what Pendleton's saying, how we should read the book of Revelation. We don't make, you know, each part of every vision mean something. You mm-hmm. know, for, so for example, the locusts in chapter 9, 1 to 11, we don't need to look for individual meanings for the teeth, the hair, the breastplates. Parts, the parts must be read in light of the whole. In the same way, uh, when you look at the city of the New Jerusalem, we're not trying to make out every individual detail mean something different to every other detail. Yeah. It's, uh, you have to read them as a whole and mm. not, not overly break it down. Mm. Okay, yeah. so that's proposition five. That's good. Okay, proposition six. The seals, trumpets, bowls of judgments, and similar symbols refer not to specific events, particular happenings, details of history, but rather principles of human conduct and of divine moral government that are operating throughout the history of the world, especially throughout the new dispensation. Mm. Yeah, so that's a big one for Hendrickson. I think so, yeah. Yeah, so we're not looking to see what the number of 666 is, you know, that one event in history which completely explains the full yes. significance of the number. Right. We're not looking for the, the names of the seven kings which represent seven heads of the beast and, you yeah. know, what they were and what the years of their reigns could be so that we can now date the present time that we're actually in. Mm. Um, that's to go way too far. Mm. So, because what that, what, that, what, that, what that ends us in is a sea of a thousand options. Yeah, exactly. And so the amillennial interpreter takes the idealist approach mm-hmm. and it assumes that the book of Revelation is an unveiling, not a hiding of the message for the church. Yeah. And it's also assumed that the book speaks to every age of the church, not excluding the first or the last generations. Mm. Mm. So the various details of the bowls, the seals, they're not seen as pointing to individual events, but principles of things that are always at work throughout the history of the church. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, that's, that, that's, it's huge. I mean, that's it kind of goes back to what we were saying a little bit earlier and that it just kind of, it releases the otherwise, I don't know, I suppose false burden upon you that kills the enjoyment of the process you know of reading the book of revelation to begin with because you know for anyone with half an inquiring mind that's thinking all right i've got to unlock this you know in order to actually get anything out of it um you know it's just going to be a matter of seconds before they're derailed and then add to that you know just a lack of understanding of the framework and trying to timeline it out on the lock and diagram or something um you know it's just going to be an absolutely well, I mean, Revelation, it kind of has it attracted a lot of weirdos over the years. You know, you, right. I remember there was like a, a, a time when, you know, if someone walked into the church and they, they're really into the book of Revelation, you just kind of, oh, man, you know, there's a, cer- yeah, there's a certain kind of thing going on there. But like, you know, I mean, that's just so tragic. And that's, you know, again, it's, it, we got to learn how to read our Bibles. You know, that, that's the bottom line. 
you can't yeah. just uh, open any book and expect that you're just going to know exactly what's going on in that genre. You got to be able to appreciate these principles. And so then in just kind of like poetry, you know, like, why do mm. they speak funny all the time? You know, <laughs> why do they, why do they do that? Why do they make things, you know, sound so super weird? Oh, they're doing this. Oh, it's a simile. Oh, it's a metaphor. Oh, it's a thing. Oh, it's cadence. Oh, wow. You know, and next thing you know, you're actually enjoying yourself reading it. So, you know, so when, when you, when you, you know, when you read Song of Solomon, and you tell your your wife that her nose, her neck looks like a tower, and her nose looks like a buckler. And then she slaps you. She slaps you. Say, but babes, it's poetry. It's fine. Yeah, it's all good. She, I'm just reading it. I'm just reading it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and, and we know that about poetry. You know, no one's going to do that. But somehow, when it comes to apocalyptic, we just go, we go cray cray. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, proposition seven. Mm. Are there yeah, only seven propositions? No, there's nine. Okay, I was about to say yeah. that would be too far. If you left it at seven. (laughs) The apocalypse (coughs) is rooted in the contemporaneous events and circumstances. Mm. It should be interpreted in light of conditions which prevailed when the book was written. In other words, it has to be grounded in in the original audience and how they would have received and understood it. Mm. And then we take it from there after we've read it through their eyes. Yeah. just automatically jumping to a futurist approach. Yes, good. We have good. to begin with the original listeners, mm-hmm. extract the principles, and then apply them beyond the original listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can't read it to the exclusion of the original listeners. So what's going to happen is that original audience is going to give us our uh, our bearing. Mm. It's going to help us see Rome. <clears throat> it's going to help us see emperor worship. It's going to help us see the worldly culture of Roman culture. As the as the things which give us the principles which we then take and apply to other generations. Mm. So yeah. we don't read Russia or Germany or Iran or America as the things that are being written about. Yeah. They can be a, a principle or a secondary application, but not the primary meaning. Even when it says the Trump shall resound. <laughs> <laughs> <Make it Yeah>. right. <laughs> All right, good. All right. Cool. Okay. Proposition eight, mm-hmm. and this is something you said last week, but the apocalypse is rooted in the sacred scriptures. It should be interpreted in harmony with the teachings of the entire Bible. Yeah, the book is one. Yeah, the subsoil of the book of Revelation is the Old Testament and the New Testament. The <clears> apostle John, <throat> author, would have been prepared by having his own mind saturated in the Bible mm. in the 21st century newspapers. Yes, brilliant. Okay, yeah. so you have to go to the scriptures to interpret it. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was a. I mean, as stupid as it sounds to say now, that was a mind blow for me. Yeah, <laughs> I remember, you know, because you are locusts are helicopters. You know, they're not the locusts yeah. of Joel. You know, and judgment and that sort of thing. So it's just like <laughs> why? Because you just don't care about your Old Testament and you're not seeing the story as one. It's almost like someone said to me, "What do you think of this?" Someone said to me, um, "In some ways, the the message of Revelation is guarded by people who care about the Bible." You know, oh, it's 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 a it's a message that that is unveiled to those who actually bother to read the whole Bible. You know, um, whereas you if you go for your conspiracy theorists and you know and they jump into the book, they're always going to be confuddled. It's got every trap for them. You know, um, but for for anyone who's grounded in the scripture and cares about it and sees the biblical storyline and wants to know. Uh, at that level, it feels like they'd just be instantly more able to see what's actually going on there by way of biblical metaphor. It definitely completes the storyline of the Bible and the rest of the Bible to understand it. So, yeah, for sure. Totally. 
like yeah. num- numerology man it's been crazy seeing uh this is another subject so but uh augustine he goes mad with numerology yeah it's crazy Gematria. oh boy we'll come <laughs> Sometime back to we'll, do a, we'll do an episode on 666 that'll be good the number of the baptist <coughs> it is the number of a man mm. all right um so proposition nine it's just a short one uh, Henriksen says the apocalypse is rooted in the mind and revelation of God. God in Christ is the real author. Hence, this book concerns the purpose of God concerning the history of the church. Mm. So if you're reading it outside God's concerns, which is his work of redemption for the church, you're reading it wrong. Yeah. Good. Brilliant. Yeah, that's it. Nine propositions. That's great. Now, yeah, very- here's a question for you, Nick. Yeah. When... Does Jesus walk amidst the lampstands? When? Yeah. Well, if he is uh, presently the uh, seat at the right hand of the Father, see, it's a picture. So, so presently he is amongst the lampstands as the the mediator between God and men. He is my high priest, and he's acting as my high priest right now in his humanity. Mm. The fact that he's walking amongst the lampstands is a picture of uh, physical presence through mm. a vision statement. So, I mean, yeah. Wouldn't you say that he would uh, be at church? Oh, is that what you're going with? Sorry, man. <laughs> you're actually asking a real <laughs> That's right, go to church. Right, <laughs> <laughs> like everything but church in your answer there. Wow. Yeah. Need a little coaching. All right, so Nick's answer aside. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in fact, what you ended up saying there was really good in terms of you know, it, it, it's going to be interpreted, you know, as in light of redemption, in light of yeah. in light of the ministry and mission of the church. And there is a lot about that, the church militant, church um, triumphant, and it's really powerful. It's a great, man, it's just so, oh, the book of Revelation, but, you know, Hendrickson's book as well, it's just an incredibly yeah. devotional book. I mean, oh, you should read it. You really should if you haven't. Um, you will love it. Um, certainly if you're in any way inclined towards amillennialism already, um, and so there's that. Um, but you know, it, what we were saying, uh, is also true in that at the end of the day where we go and, uh, yeah, everything that's spoken about in revelation, whether it be the book or not, is going to be in our, uh, attendance to church, hearing the word, uh, mm-hmm. reveal these things. And, uh, you know, the, the presence of Christ is mediated to us through word and spirit. That's going to make you want to go to church, right? Amen. Yeah. All right, good. Well, on that note, um, thanks, Nick. Seven, cool, nine principles, William Hendrickson. Boom. Nine S- yeah, man. Slammed it out Saturdays. Boom. All right. Cheers.